I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for ghosts to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised if- Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am not your host, PTF He uh, just called me just now He said he's going to go make dinner What do you think PTF's making for dinner? Uh, but it's partially delicious Maybe But he's drinking with dinner Jeez, this guy. I was I was telling him that I uh oh so I'm not your host PTF. This is Jonathan Kinchin, JK plus one. Anyways, I was telling Pete uh yesterday I was like looking through some old like tax stuff, bank records, and I was looking at uh pre pandemic how much we spent in the paddock bar at Saratoga the previous summer. I mean <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. So I'm looking forward to uh, spending a ton of money in the paddock bar again uh, this year. Uh, hopefully things back to normal at Saratoga. And we're talking about Saratoga. We're talking about New York. It goes hand in hand with our guest today. Very excited to have Joe Applebaum on. Uh, Ninth the president uh, off the hook. Uh, racing and, and breeding and pin hooking and consigning. And also... Uh, a Breeders' Cup betting challenge champion. Um, so there's only one champion on this uh, on this episode. Uh, my second place finish does not allow me into that fraternity quite yet. Um, I mean, I was really excited to have Joe on just to, to talk about racing uh, in general. I think he's got some great ideas about the direction of the game. And he's one of those... Uh, kind of unicorns in the game where he really has a complete understanding of 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 all sides of the equation uh, representing the horseman's group so he understands their needs desires dreams hopes challenges uh, he's a horse player understands our dreams hopes challenges and then also uh, having to work hand in hand with the racetracks I think he has a great idea of the racetrack operators and what their dreams um, and, and issues could be. And, and so I think he's uniquely uh, set up to to really help bridge the gap between uh, the factions in this game that I think that would help the game ultimately. So um, enough of that. I'm excited to have Joe on. And, I, and we, we did the uh, old school JK plus one about two hours. And it's really good stuff. Uh, we get pretty in depth on some certain topics in New York. We get in depth about his uh, his history in the game, the Breeders' Cup betting challenge, and and some ideas moving forward. And uh, one of my favorite things he talked about was the zombie racetracks, which which you'll learn more about here in the next couple of hours. So uh, thanks for tuning in, and I am excited to welcome my friend and our guest, Off the Hook Joe. What's going on? How you doing, John? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, the weather's nice down here in Austin, so I can't complain. No South by Southwest this year, man. I, you know, I didn't even think about that. It's yeah. No, you know, I'm usually traveling usually because it's like triple crown season, like derby prep season. So usually I'm out of here for South by Southwest. But um, man, our economy it it it's in this city. I, you know, I know a lot of the hospitality and. Uh, I know Uber drivers, like, I mean, they build their whole year around, about around South by. So 
it's, it's unfortunate. It's a fun event. You know, it's on my bucket list. I, I've been a, a probably a 10 time attendee at Jazz Fest, and I'm, I really enjoy live music. And I, I was so excited to like get that kind of taken care of last year, and the, the world changed essentially. Yeah, you know, the problem about to, to go on a tangent about South by Southwest is that when I was in school here back in like, you know, 2005, it had like an underground feel to it. It was really what it was meant to be where just the most random bars had people performing in them, random restaurants, just anywhere that you could put a stage, there would be the most random people. Like I remember seeing like Snoop play a private show that no one knew about, but it was like, there was like 60 people there and it was at this bar that no one ever goes to normally but unfortunately, it's kind of turned into more of like this corporate deal now where I remember um, like Prince pay- played a private show, but you had to download this app and wait in line to get it, to go to uh, it. Any show that you have to download an app to go to is not a good show. I, I don't know. Get, even if the great Prince is playing. Right. Yeah. It's, and it's just, you know, and, the, you know, they do a lot of really cool things, but it just you know, a lot of little pop-up shows and, but it, it, the, the city's buzzing, right? It's fun. There's a lot of people from out of town. So it, uh, it still, it still works. I just, I worry it's not as good as it used to be. You, you know what I feel about uh, similarly is the Sloan conference in Boston, the MIT sports analytics conference. I used to go years ago when it was literally like a professor with some overheads and you could walk up and talk to anyone. And now it's like thousands of people. It's sponsored by ESPN and all these other big corporate entities. And it's much more about like, you know, seeing Billy Bean and uh, I don't know, some other kind of pseudo sports celebrity talking in front of 5,000 people and talking about ticket analytics and stuff like that. And it's just, I don't know, not as interesting as it used to be. I know. And that stinks because I, I, you know, I feel like that happens in a lot of situations and like every, every, you know, facet of life, you kind of have those situations where we always appreciate these things when they're kind of underground and they're ours. And then when other people discover how great it is, it kind of frustrates us because it takes away part of what it was that was special. You know, I mean, you know, that, that song that you loved when it, when you heard it on the album, then they started playing on the radio and it started annoying you. Um, it happens in horse racing too. You know, it's like that horse that you saw break their maiden and it's like, Oh, it's so exciting. But then like, once everyone starts crowning the horse, the next derby winner, suddenly that horse annoys you all of a sudden. So it's, it's a, it's a bizarre, uh, it's a bizarre thing. Yeah, that's a good point. That that's how I feel about some of the restaurants in Saratoga that I used to hang out with that, you know, all of a sudden they got popular, I guess. What's it? It's like a W.C. Fields uh, expression about that. Like, a, you know, any club that would let me into it, I don't want to be, you know, or maybe exactly. it's Yogi Berra. I don't know. This place used to be. I think it's Yogi Berra. I got to find this quote. You know, it used to be everyone used to come here until it got popular or something like that. Well, look, I, I've, I've, uh, I realized while just kind of looking at some things, getting ready for this, that like, you know, I, I hundred percent consider you a friend, but I realized that we've never really sat down and talked a ton about your background. In fact, I, I had no idea that you played and coached college football, which, you know, I coached high school football in, in Texas. And, and so, um, you know, I, I didn't know we had that in common, but one of the things I wanted to start with is 
um, the I want to know which one came first and, and feel free to go whichever way you want to go with the story. But, you know, the backyard uh, is a famous place at Saratoga where um, I believe handicapping royalty is right. I mean, obviously uh, what Paul and Duke Matisse and Matisse brothers have built and and I, I look up to them in that regard. But you were a part of that group back there with with the Rotundos and just being there every day. What came first, that or hitting the pick six that allowed you and your buddies to start claiming horses that led to your off the hook operation? So uh, actually hanging out, it all started mostly hanging out in the backyard at Belmont at first. I was in high school. This is going to be like the mid eighties, early to mid eighties. And I had a bunch of friends who were maybe four or five years older than me were in college. And we would hang out in the summer pre Saratoga uh, in Belmont and we'd go to the track all day and then, you know, go out at night and kind of rinse and repeat most weekends. Um, we started going up to Saratoga. Uh, we actually all went to a summer camp close to Saratoga about a half hour away. And that's how we started going there. Um, and we used to hang out on the back porch of the clubhouse. So up on the second floor at the top of the escalator, if you turn left, it's now an area that's mostly empty. But back in the late 80s, early 90s, that was an area that a lot of handicappers and I'll call them well-regarded, quote unquote, wise guys and semi-professionals used to hang out in. Um and we were all watching on TVs. You'd run around to the other side to, to bet with the teller. Uh, and then everyone would just stand around and, you know, curse each other or celebrate or what have you. But about, I want to say in the mid nineties or so, we kind of moved our tack from that location. You still had to have a collared shirt on and you had to pay to get into the clubhouse. And, you know, I was in, well, I guess I was just out of college at that point, but you know, we're still young guys. We didn't want to pay extra dollars. So uh, we started hanging out in the back and I don't know, one of two of my friends started going back there and then we all just said, you know what, let's just hang out back there. And Duke and Paul and the whole Purple Gang used to, we were at one TV and they were like, I don't know, 25 feet away at another TV. And uh, we just kind of, over the years, you know, some guys sitting next to you, you kind of casually say something and... Um, and then we, I'd love to say the groups merged, but we really got more integrated into their larger group uh, as, as me and my friends got older and moved away and had kids and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was back there, I want to say it was 2001 when we hit the pick six. Um, it was on, right, was it 2001? And it was on Travers Day and there was about a $200,000 carryover. And we were there. And what's funny is it's 20 years ago. I will still have people come up to me if I'm hanging out in the backyard and talk to me about the day, like, hey, that you and the guys hit the pick six. Like, <laughs> it, it's crazy that 20 years later, people will still pick you out uh, and talk about that. 
So, uh, you know, I, you know, normally I'm sure you have these conversations, you've done interviews before and, and you've probably uh, been a little bit more dodgy, but with this audience, you got to tell us a little bit more about the sequence, some of the things you remember and, and uh, you know, were you alive to a single, were you alive to a bunch of horses? Was it the best result, the worst result? Uh, how'd that whole day unfold? You know, it's fun. I should actually look it up on Equibase as we're talking. The key, the key race, and I can't remember, right in those days, uh, it, you, we didn't end with the last race. You ended with the feature, right? And actually on that day, I don't even think the Travers was the feature. I think that tr- there was the Travers and then they ran the four-star Dave after the Travers maybe. And the key for us in that last race, I don't really remember a lot of it, um, but I'll, I'll give you some insight into what we would do. Is in that last race, a horse named Dr. Kashnikow, who was trained by uh, John Fisher, J.R.S. Fisher at the time. And then I think John Kimmel trained him at one point. He was stuck behind a wall of horses. And I want to say we were only two deep uh, at that point. And the other horse was, was, was dead. Uh, not literally dead, but dead in the race. And all of a sudden a, a spot opened up in the, and Dr. Kashnikow just like got through this hole, like, like they tend to do late on the Saratoga turf course and got up just in time. So going back to ticket construction, and I won't be cagey at all because I will tell you, and no one likes to hear this, but I'm happy to, to rhapsody about it. Rhapsodize. Sorry. Ticket construction and multi-pick wagering, ticket construction is far, far more important, okay, than any selections you're going to make. So for all that time you spend reading the form or making your notes or whatever about the sequence, you should be putting at least that much effort and energy into thinking through your ticket construction. It's In multi-race bets, it's, it's incredibly more important. So what we used to do in these situations is myself and my friend Marshall Solomon uh, were typically the ringleaders, right? And we would discuss the card and go through it and kind of argue, where do you go deep? Where do you go shallow? Who, you know, how many tickets do we want to play, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then we'd collect from our friends, hey, who's in for 100, who's in for 200. I want to say we spent about $1,200 that day on three tickets, one being about $800, the main ticket, and two uh, auxiliary tickets, about 200 each. Uh, And here's the funny thing, in all these years, now, I got to say, and I'm trying to say this without bragging, I have hit literally hundreds of pick sixes. That is, well, until they destroyed it um, with the with these other pick six variants these days. That was my main effort for many, many years. I've hit many, many, many pick sixes. The key, you, you always win on your main ticket. I would say it's Always 90% of the time, if you win, you win on your main ticket. You rarely win on your backup tickets. So if you are playing, and it's hard to play them these days, but the same holds true for the pick five or the pick four, it's probably better to expand your main ticket 
than it is to have multiple backup tickets. Right. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think that that is, um, that's a hundred percent true. And it, it's one of the things I try to get across to people all the time, especially newer players. I, I tell them what I, it took me 15 years to learn is like, look, just, you can use somebody else's picks that it's not even that important. It's the, it's the construction. And the fact that you spent two hours last night on, uh, you know, you, your, your family went to sleep and you went to the, to the kitchen table and you spent two hours looking at the races and then you constructed your wager in the 30 seconds it took you to walk from your seat to the window. Uh, it's, that's just not the way you need to do it. It needs to, to, to use that time elsewhere, which I, I think is that that's like one of the edges that, that still could be left is ticket construction. That might be the only edge, not the only edge, but it's for sure the largest edge left. Right. There's a, there's a, sorry, sorry no, to interrupt, but especially at a track like Saratoga, that's uh, so liquid and typically, you know, pretty efficient. It's pretty darn efficient. Like, you you're actually playing the crowd you're not playing the horses and i know that's uh maybe not as romantic as yeah i was half hungover and it was two in the morning and i was up in the attic and my friend's house in saratoga an inspiration hit me and i'm playing the number five here (laughs) but the reality of trying to tread water and being successful is that it's in a place like Saratoga, especially it's a lot more important how you bet than who you bet. I completely agree. Um, now you guys scored out six digit score. How did that parlay into claiming horses and, and the operation that is, uh, off the hook? Well, my, uh, my, my friend Marshall, myself and another friend, Noah Cooper, we took our part of that, or not all of it, but we took some of our money and we decided to claim a horse. Uh, we met Leah Giamardi, who's still training today on the New York uh, Horseman's Board with me. Um, and we went in for a horse. And I got to be honest, I forget which one went first. I want to say we claimed a horse named Luft for about 25000 and we got in a shake, and thankfully, Luft pulled up midway around the turn. And those were the days before voided claims. Today, you you know, that claim would just be voided if a horse didn't finish the race. In those days, you were stuck with that horse, even if he literally passed away on the track. Thankfully, Luft neither passed away and was able to race again, but we lost the shake for the horse, which is some sort of like amazing reverse jinx luck uh if you think about it so then we went in for a horse named Cherokee Trail that Wayne Lucas was dropping um from Maiden Special down at Delaware to Maiden 50 at Aqueduct and this horse was uh this horse was by Seattle Slough his dam was like Stormcat's sister you know and we we're like, okay, he's showing some talent. Let's go. So we we claim the horse. Leah wheels him back, uh, and we win first time out. <clears throat> uh, maiden special weight. And oh, 
I'm sorry. I, I hope this doesn't blow the broadcast. I forgot there was another horse we claimed in there before Cherokee Trail. And this is important to the story. Sorry to, to throw off the, uh, no, the you're narrative. Fine. No, but you're fine. We, we claimed a horse named Country Only, who he had run third or fourth in the Illinois Derby and was in for 50 at Aqueduct uh, from a trainer named Carlos Morales and an owner named Morton Bin. Uh, this, remember those names. Uh, so we claim him for 50. He's a big, huge, beautiful horse. We're so excited. You know, we're going to turn him around, et cetera, et cetera. And we wheel him back for 75,000, like two weeks later, he runs terribly, but Scott Lake takes him off of us for 75. Okay. I know people don't even know what I'm talking about because we don't even run open claimers for 50 and 75 anymore. <laughs> Naira runs them occasionally. Nowhere else in the country even runs them, uh, which is sad because those are good competitive races. But uh, so we lose the source. We make 25,000 in two weeks. And we're like, hey, this is unbelievable. This is easy. We're killing this. We, we didn't claim the horse that, that got pulled up and we just made another 25. So then we claimed Cherokee Trail off of Wayne Lucas. Um, and so we turned that horse around and he wins first time out. Hey, Maiden Special. We take him from Maiden 50. We go to Maiden Special. He goes to the front and we win. Now we think we're in business. Someone comes and offers us, I think mostly based on pedigree, uh, 150,000 or maybe 130 or something for the horse. And we go, no, we would never sell for that little money. This is classic uh, beginner's luck and then right into a rookie mistake. Anyone thinking of buying horses, when they come for you to sell the horse, you sell the horse. Okay. That's if you learn anything from this podcast, learn that. Uh, so we turn down the offer and we like think it's, you know, ha ha ha, why we're going to have a stallion on our hands. You know, uh, the horse comes back about a month later uh, for an allowance for a one X and runs like a decent second or third, but like totally competitive. And we're like, OK, we're OK. And then about four days later, Leah calls and says, uh, yeah, the horse cracked its cannon bone. That's the shin bone, essentially, uh, for those who don't have uh, equine, uh, <clears throat> uh, an equine degree. Um, he's going to need to put a plate in, and uh, he's going to be out like six months. Oh, okay. Uh, so we, we put a plate in, we rehab him, comes back, and the trainer calls, and she says, uh, we, I think you should put him in for like 16 or 25. And me and my friend say, are you crazy? He just ran third in the allowance race a few months back. He's, he's more than that. And we're like, no, no. So I think she put him in for like 50 or 35 or something like that after twisting our arms. Uh, and he couldn't really compete. And he goes down the ladder and anyway, and our time with Leah came to an end. And here's the second lesson, if you're going to learn anything, is if you're thinking about a claiming price, you put them in for the lowest possible price as soon as possible. Give the horse a chance to be competitive. He can go back up the ladder, 
But once they start going down the ladder, it's very difficult. Uh, the horse doesn't experience success. The training team, the groom, the exercise rider, no one's happy and things can spiral quickly. So if you're going to go in for a claim, it's better to go low. So you lose the horse. You take that money and you can buy a new horse. But anyway, so after, I don't know, another six months or a year of that, uh, we had, me and Noah had been down at, uh, at the Preakness and may, that was the year I want to say, um, uh, charismatic one had won the Derby and the Preakness. We made money both on the Derby and the Preakness with him, but we made a lot of money betting on a horse in the, uh, in their sprint race there, uh, the Hirsch Jacobs, named True Direction. So we decided to transfer the horse to that trainer. His name was Carlos Morales, the guy who we had claimed country only from a few, uh, or it's probably a year before that. And we transferred the horse, and Carlos says to me, the first thing he says is, I know this horse. I tried to buy him from you to be a sire in Venezuela for 150000 and you turned me down, you dummy. <laughs> so we run him a few times. So I go meet Carlos. Carlos had never had uh, an American trainer. All his trainers had been from Venezuela. All his owners, I'm sorry, had been from Venezuela. He was the leading owner, uh, leading trainer in Venezuela. And when I first met Javier Castellano, I guess this is like 17, 18 years ago. He says, no, you don't understand. In my country, Carlos is like Pletcher and Lucas rolled into one. He had won eight claiming, uh, eight training titles by the time he was 30. Um, he, he had an illustrious career there. Came over here. He did pretty well. But uh, just many uh, immigrants to our country realize it's sometimes hard to break into the uh, – uh, it's it's hard to break uh, into the kind of mainstream. And so I'm the first American client who calls him out of the blue. Um, and so he thinks it's a prank that we're not even coming with the horse. <laughs> and he's like, this guy's not even showing up. And I'm usually late to many things. So I was late and he's about ready to leave. Finally, I show up. He goes, I know your horse. He goes, uh, I'll take them, but you know, I'm not really good with claimers. That's not my game. I'm much better buying and developing young horses. That's where I think I'm really good. So I say, okay, okay, let's take the horse. We'll figure it out. So he takes the horse. He, he doesn't improve uh, the horse at all. Finally he says, I can get you the 16,000 we're running for now. So wow, that's a big drop from 150. So we sell the horse for 16 to Venezuela where he goes, and this is kind of funny, he becomes the leading sire his first year, this horse Cherokee Trail, but then he goes impotent. And so they take him, and they take him from a sire, they make him a jump horse, and he became like a champion jumper, all within, all in Venezuela. <laughs> so now we're left, it's like next summer, and now we don't have a horse. So what do we do? Uh, I actually put together another group of guys, guys, guys who are still with me to this day. And we send Carlos to the sale 
and he buys a yearling for $50,000 or $60,000, a siphon filly. Okay. Um, so we buy the filly, we send her to Ocala to be broken. They call us in about December of that year and they say, hey, we want to enter this horse uh, in a two-year-old sale, in the Keeneland April sale, and we think she'll do pretty well. So we're like, ah, we just want to race. It's a bunch of friends. We're not really that interested in, you know, in selling, you know, what's the upside? And they say, well, how's this? We'll pay the entry fee for you. And if you don't sell, you don't sell, but let's go in the sale. Okay. So we train, we go in the sale, we breeze. She's the fastest filly to breeze in the first breeze show. In those days, we used to have two breeze shows about a week apart, five days apart. uh, And now we just have one. But uh, so the second breeze show comes, it's pouring rain at Keeneland. And the couple horses go out on the track and one of them breaks down and all the consigners get together and they say, no more breezes. We're not risking our stock. And so she's left as the fastest filly in the wholesale and she's good looking. And so the long short, the long story short of it is she sells for half a million dollars. Okay. So we're like, Hey, this is, pretty good. Now, the kind of weird twist to this is uh, Frank and Marie Jones, the owners of Forestry and other illustrious horses that Todd Pletcher trained, wound up buying her. She never really worked out. She just never really was that good, certainly not at the level that they wanted to compete at. And they eventually sold her uh, in the November sale a couple years later and she was purchased by Venezuelan breeders. <laughs> so in many ways, it all traces back to Venezuela. But after that score, uh, essentially, we did two horses the next year. And then we did 14 the year after that. And the year after that, I got a, I guess you'd call it a hedge fund or a private equity fund to come in and partner with us. And we bought a farm and... Essentially, the rest is history. How many do you have now? Like, how many babies do you? So, I guess they'd be new two-year-olds now. How many new two-year-olds do you guys have this year that you'll be taking to sales, so on and so forth? That's a great question. So we um, we let. That's a good question. I don't know. But we're getting our entries in right now, but my guess is we'll sell between 30 and 40. We're not one of the biggest consigners. We're kind of like a boutique consigner. Um, we do some breeding. We, you know, we have enough to keep us in business, but not so much uh, that it's kind of overwhelming. Um, so we'll, do you only sell yours or do you sell no, for other people? We have some, we have clients, um, some of ours, my partner's good at collecting, uh, collecting guys, but yeah, I mean, we went into it in 08, 09, you know, us along with everyone else just got crushed. Um, so we had to retrench. It took us like four or five years to retrench. Uh, we built the business back up and, you know, since then, we, you know, 
we've kind of been like status quoing a little bit. You know, we now, have the form, we have probably, I don't know, about a dozen to 15 broodmares between New York and Ocala. We'll sell about 40 horses a year. We'll do some deals here and there. We'll race a couple. You know, we always try to keep our hand on the racing end. Um, and especially in New York, uh, where the purses are great and I like to race. So we, that's kind of our, uh, our business plan. Now, how do, how do you decide, I want to talk about some of the, some of the good ones that you've, you guys have had, but how, how do you decide which ones you're going to race? Is it almost like the market decides for you because the ones that you don't sell, is that yeah, how you make the decision? We, we're or here to say, do you yeah, ever say the first we're, thing is we're here to sell? Okay. Um, this is Carlos and myself. We're here to sell, so we will keep horses that are either a injured and not ready for the sale. Like we have two three-year-olds who one literally got injured on the van ride over to the sale last June. He ripped off uh, most of his hoof, uh, one of his front hoofs. And it was a very good horse by Lauben. He couldn't be a hotter sire. We were like licking our chops, ready to go. And he literally in the van over caught his hoof on the window and ripped it, essentially ripped it off. We've worked incredibly hard, my partner mostly, not me, uh, trying to get him back. And, you know, you'll see him debut in the spring here in New York. Um, so it's, it's either things like that. Or things where I get stubborn, which I really shouldn't do, and say, hey, that horse is worth more than he should be, than they're willing to pay us for. Um, so when we do race them, we're often racing the ones that either need some work or, you know, we have to make uh, a chicken salad from, as they would say. Yeah. Now, do um, you – how many sorry, do go you ahead, – yeah. So how many do you ever sell at yearling sales or do you always wait till the two-year-old? No, we sometimes do. But honestly, like I've had such poor results at the yearling sales. Like there's guys in Kentucky who are incredibly good at prepping these horses for the yearling sales. That's not us. We're actually incredibly good at getting young horses ready to run. And I like to take advantage of that more. Makes sense. Um, some of the good ones, Informed Decision, Yankee Victor, Turbo Compressor, Zevo, Fapian. Am I missing a couple of other ones that, that uh, at the top of your list? Yeah, no, we've had, uh, well, ones that have been through the program, those are most of the top ones. Um, we've had something like 30 graded stakes winners in the last, I don't know, 12 years. Um, so, yeah, those are those are some of them. So obviously oh, you're go ahead. Sorry, I, yeah, uh, El Deal. El Deal is a right. horse we bought as a weanling. I forgot about him. Uh, grade one winner, uh, and, and one of my favorites. That that it's hard. No one sees him because he did this in Korea. But there's a filly named Gamdongi Bata uh, who won over two and a half million dollars in Korea. Uh, wow! And, and they bought him for us for like something like thirty thousand. Oh my gosh. Were you, were you staying up late at night watching that one? You, you know, there's a guy on Twitter named Korea Race. I don't know his real name, 
if he's listening, sorry, I don't know your real name, but I would communicate with him over Twitter and he, he would like update me. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so obviously, uh, there, I mean, there's a million things, directions we can go, but I think this is a good natural one where you have your involvement as a player first, then you, uh, kind of, you transition to being, um, an owner, a breeder, a, a, a consigner, and and then then you became um, <laughs> a bureaucrat to a certain extent by getting involved with NYTHA. and and what what led to that decision to get involved, and it also kind of let the people know that maybe aren't familiar. What what is the mission of NYTHA? What would be the mission statement? What you guys are trying to accomplish? Sure. First, I like to say I'm an advocate, not a bureaucrat, but there, there's a lot of bureaucracy in racing, so I understand. Um, here's what happened. Many, I guess it's not even many, it's uh, three, six, it's about seven years ago, I wrote an op-ed in uh, the Thoroughbred Daily News, basically calling for uh, open data sourcing. Right. And that we should be similar to what football and basketball are doing. Uh, basically, Pat Cummings stole all my material five years later. Um, and a guy named Joe Brocklebank. I, 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 I laughed at that, but I had it on mute. I just didn't want you to know. I didn't, I didn't want you to think I didn't laugh at that. Well, let's re-record the laugh because. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um a guy named Joe Brocklebank, who, who is a well-known horse agent and has basically spent the last 50 years on the Belmont backside, uh, first as a jockey and, you know, and then all sorts of other roles, uh, came up to me at the April Ocala sale that year and said, we need you on the Nitha board. I read your article. You're exactly right. And I said, I don't even really know what the NYTHA board is. Like, I didn't really understand what it, what it was or what it did at the time. Anyway, for some reason, I trusted Joe and I ran for the board and was elected. We have uh, five owners and five trainers uh, and then an elected president. Uh, I, I ran for the board, was elected as an owner, worked for three years with Rick Violet, who was obviously the trainer. Uh, it was the president and well-known trainer in New York. Um, and then when Rick was, uh, you know, Rick was ill in the last year or two of that, as we all know now, um, I ran for president uh, after his term ended. So here's what NYTHA does. And some people have a lot of misconceptions about it. First and foremost, NYTHA provides uh, philanthropy and benevolence to the backstretch workers at Naira racetracks. So we spend about $1.7 million a year on uh, a healthcare clinic, on uh, aftercare, about 300000 a year in aftercare. We have a scholarship program for the children of backstretch workers. Um, and I can tell you, we put kids into every level of uh, advanced education, including uh, a pilot from JetBlue. We have a young woman who's in veterinary school in Ohio, at Ohio State right now. Uh, it's, it's been an incredibly impressive program. Uh, we run English as a second language programs. We run uh, drug and alcohol rehab counseling. We, we work with the chaplaincy to do a whole host of 
recreational activities. So when you see when you see the soccer league at night, if you ever drive by the track, uh, and on the Oklahoma side, you see soccer games late at night in Saratoga. Uh, that's with our help. Uh, so that's first and foremost. In a lot of ways, uh, it's hard to live that life in New York of a backstretch worker. Uh, you don't get paid a ton. Uh, it, New York's expensive and it's hard work. Uh, so in many ways, we act as the owner's conscience, making it a better life and a better uh, existence back there. We also then uh, work with Naira and with Albany as an advocate for owners and trainers. Um, so we work on things like workers' compensation insurance, which had been a boogeyman for many years. We've been able to reduce that those numbers by like 40% over the last few years. Uh, we work on, you know, any and all things that uh, need to be negotiated between uh, a track and its horsemen, uh, be it dates or purse levels or uh, even sometimes wagering rules uh, that need to be approved by a bunch of different uh, entities here in New York. Uh, so, yes, yeah, somehow I, I, I've taken this job on, quote unquote, even though you don't get paid for it, um, but uh, it's actually given me a lot of pleasure. And when people ask me why would I do it, I I really feel like you can sit in the backyard in Saratoga with your friends or wherever you're watching the races and complain about this and complain about that and ask why don't they do this. But if you don't get involved in some way, and it's not easy to get involved, I understand that. But if you don't get involved in some way, we're never going to improve things. So I kind of got involved and now, now they sucked me in. You know, I've, I've said this a few times while doing the show and, and, um, and I think it's very apparent um, with your involvement. I, I feel as a horse player and someone who loves this game and for someone who, you know, you know, this, this game has almost given me kind of as like a secondary career. Um, I obviously want to see it thrive and it gives me great, comfort to know that um you are in a position that i know that what's best for the game and for us as horse players uh, will be communicated via uh joe applebaum that makes me feel good it makes me feel comfortable i i and and so i appreciate you doing uh the job although it, it it's probably a lot of work and like you said no compensation uh yeah it's a lot of work but you, I'm learning so much. And first, I want to thank you for saying that, right? Th there's a lot of compromises one has to make in this role. Uh, you know, I'd, as a horse player, you just would love like everyone to have 5% takeout and the game to thrive. But, uh, you know, that's not actually happening. So you have to find pathways to success and ways in which you can build as customer-friendly product as possible, despite there being a unbelievable number of entities uh, who have their straw in the drink. So we're working every day. And I, I got to say, we were extremely fortunate to hire, about a year ago, NYTHA hired uh, Will Allen Pajevich from Naira. And he, had, he worked at Portland Meadows before that, and he has a long history in the wagering side of the game. So in Will, we have someone who understands wagering 
in a way that I think no other horseman group does. And the connection from having a healthy and happy fan base to the money flows that go to purse accounts and essentially to our trainers as well. And you need that ecosystem to be healthy, right? So that everyone thrives. You need where the gamblers feel they're getting a a good deal and where there's enough money to entice owners and trainers to participate. So there's, I, I do, I definitely want to talk. There's a couple of topics I want to talk to you as it relates to NYTHA and some of the things that you're involved in and, and you kind of touched on it with a lot of different, you know, people's, I don't want to say their hands in the jar because that has like a negative connotation, but like there's a lot of people that you have to appease when it comes to the distribution of the wagering dollar and takeout and so on and so forth. So I do want to talk to you a little bit about the VLTs also explain, I'd love for you to explain kind of the ADW situation, what kind of sets Naira bets aside from other ADWs. But before we get to that, because I feel like that could be a longer conversation, I did want you to have the opportunity to talk about two topics that have come up. Um, one came up when we were talking to Kieran on this show um, about the Department of Labor situation. I heard you explain it on Andy Serling's podcast across the board. And so I wanted you to have an opportunity to kind of explain that portion of it. And then also I wanted you to have a chance to explain and kind of champion the successes that you guys have had with the workers comp situation. Okay. You got me all. That's a lot of material, but let's go workers comp DOL in any order. And then I'll set you back up for the, uh, for the takeout ADW stuff. Okay. So, okay. So the DOL, that's the department of labor here in New York last year, it ended about a year ago, although there's a few lingering cases, but in 2019, uh, and this probably stretches back into 2018, started uh, more aggressive enforcement actions against a bunch of trainers. Um, some of it directly related to horse racing, but a lot of it, just the pressure that DOL uh, has faced and has focused on, on a lot of uh let's call them manual labor sort of jobs. So you saw similar enforcement actions against restaurants who are not properly paying their delivery people here in New York, right? And we know New York is a liberal, uh, labor-friendly state, okay? And uh, agrarian or agricultural-like jobs are, are not always... Uh, are, are sometimes difficult. Guys aren't great at keeping their time cards. Um, and, and I think this goes for both workers and trainers, right? You don't get into training horses because you want to run uh, a, a great spreadsheet-oriented business, for lack of a better way of saying it, right? And a lot of the guys who work for us on the backside, right, come from modest means, their you know levels of education vary, so they're not super interested in always participating in the system. Having said that, <clears throat> New York State has a bunch of rules uh, for hourly workers, and you know you got to follow them. Otherwise, the state's going to come down on you. Now, for horse trainers in particular, there there's some difficulties. And there's burdens of uh, work that 
are a pain in the butt, quite frankly. Not that you don't have to do them, but the rules don't make a lot of sense. So for example, if you're a worker at Belmont and you ship over to Aqueduct, okay, because you have a horse running, let's say you're a groom or a hot walker and a horse is running later that day, you have two issues that you have to deal with. One is split shift. So you may work from five in the morning till 11 in the morning, not work from 11 to two, and then work from two to four. Okay. And the trainer also has to deal with the fact that uh, Belmont is in Nassau County and Aqueduct is in Queens County, and they have two different minimum wage rates. Okay. So the trainer to put that in correctly to his payroll service or her payroll service needs to one calculate uh, multiple rates and two has to deal with the laws around split shift. Okay. Not that they can't do it, but if you only have like our median trainer only has about 10 to 12 employees, you know, that's a, that's a large administrative burden on a small business. And I'm not making excuses and everyone needs to be paid properly, but that's a reality, right? That is a pain in the behind. Right. The second part of it that, that a lot of guys got caught out in is the way in which they bonus people. So traditionally at the track, um, we bonus people off of horses winnings, right? So, Trainers don't charge 10% anymore. Most of them charge 12 or 13% with two or 3% going to the barn, right? The groom gets a percent, the exercise rider gets a percent, the hot walker gets the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so in New York, and it may be national, there, those amounts, there's a, is it non-discretionary or is it a discretionary bonus? Okay. So if it's non-discretionary, and currently the interpretation of the way guys paid before was that it was non-discretionary because it was like uh, if you were a broker or a real estate agent, like you get your percent and that on the thing. Those should be calculated into a worker's gross wages, which when they work overtime, you need to calculate overtime off of this new recalculated gross wage. I would actually say it's non-discretionary because it's not up to the trainer, but it's actually forced trainers to bonus their employees in a more haphazard way. Um, So we actually, during this crisis, have started working with with the Department of Labor uh, to try to get better guidance on some of these rules, uh, to do more education for the trainers. We ran a number of education sessions last year. Uh, just as this all was cranking up, we got slammed with COVID. And it has been an all-out effort. So those efforts uh, have died down a lot. The Department of Labor is now focused on getting unemployment insurance out to people because the demand here in New York was just staggering. Um, so I think we're in a lot better place than we were, let's say, two or three years ago. Um, but the trainers have had to up their game significantly on an administrative side. And, you know, we don't always love that. That's why we're in small business, because to go back to a word you used before, 
we didn't want to be bureaucrats. Right. Right. Exactly. And then <laughs> but, the other, the other part of it that I, that I heard you explain too, that, that made a ton of sense to me um, <clears throat> was that traditionally in racing, because you're dealing with live animals, it's not like an hourly job. This is a more of like a quote unquote salary job. And I think a lot, you know, everywhere else in the country, these guys and gals are paid on a weekly basis. And so the tradition of racing, it seems like a lot of New York guys were doing and gals were doing the same thing, but that's not okay. New York requires them to be paid hourly. That's correct. That That's kind of the simple one. That was really our culture not being uh, in line with the times. You know, that is just the way it is in New York. And, you know, you got to pay guys hourly who are doing that sort of work. And like, there's not a lot of interpretation there, but you're right. If you go around the country, you know, everyone just knows like, how much am I making this week? Right. That no one's talking in hourly numbers. So it's a huge culture shift, both for the employer and for the, uh, and for the workers. Right. And I think the big misconception is that people were being underpaid. And yeah, I, I totally agree with I, Look, I'm not here to defend anyone or to promote anyone. And I'm sure there were instances where people were being underpaid here or there. But I think a lot of this is administrative burden as opposed to, uh, you know, they when this happens, they use language because, quite honestly, it gets you in the paper like wage theft. Right. There was not wage theft going on. This was not your supervisor at a restaurant stealing 25% of your tips. That's not what was happening. Right. And I, and I also like the fact that, that you mentioned as well, that, that it's, it's policed pretty well on the backside because there's about 17 other barns that will hire you if you aren't happy with what you're being paid or how you're being compensated. Yes. There's an actual market going on. And I think the guys know very well who's getting paid what by whom and they're you know that we have a, a dearth of workers now we don't have a lot of workers uh mostly due to the of the last four years of federal immigration policy um so if guys don't feel like they're getting paid properly they're they're moving and, and it's kind of weird for us i'll be honest because nitha is there and a lot of what we do is there to protect and help the workers so people got to understand, like, if I see wholesale um, underpayment of workers, or I think people are doing the wrong thing, we're going to let them know, right. right? Most of what we did to help solve this problem was connect guys with better payroll services and a better accountants. And that really helped them. Uh, you know, it, it was mostly an organizational matter. Now, as far as the workers comp thing, because I think a lot of time, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been spending a ton of time in New York and following New York racing and, and you hear these rumors of so-and-so is going to leave New York because it's so expensive and da, 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 da. The, the word that always come, the, well, the phrase that always came up that I always heard was workers comp is, is so expensive in New York. Explain the workers comp thing and the successes you guys have had in kind of getting that going in a better direction. All right. So workers comp. Uh, is everywhere in the country, 
essentially. Uh, we have it on our farm in Florida, you know, California's work comp woes. Uh, I don't want to get Greg Avioli upset with me, but they, they have their own work comp woes, right? So workers comp essentially is insurance uh, if you get injured on the job. And we know that working with horses, especially riding them, is uh, a dangerous activity. And guys get hurt and sometimes seriously hurt. Here in New York, we're going to pay for anyone who gets hurt working working with a horse. Uh, you're going to have good insurance. You're going to get your medical paid for. Uh, and you're going to get reimbursed for the salary you miss. That's, that's what work comp does. Uh, we had a spate of years. Uh, about six, seven years ago, maybe even eight years ago already, where we had a bunch of act, uh, accidents, and uh, we and we were with a insurance carrier who wasn't doing a great job uh, managing the claims. So consequently, uh, the rate of workers' comp went all the way up to twenty-five dollars per hundred dollars of salary. Okay, so if you paid, just so people understand, if you paid someone a thousand dollars for that week of work, an exercise rider, you were paying the work comp folks two hundred and fifty dollars. Okay, on top of that, so that's un, you know, that's unsustainable. So we have through a bunch of things, uh, through a bunch of uh, initiatives, made things a lot safer. We now meet regularly with Naira, with Finger Lakes, with the Gaming Commission and the Jocks, uh, as well as our insurance folks, uh, to review safety uh, at all the tracks, uh, review any claims that are notable, uh, and to try to follow trends uh, trends of where they're occurring and where we can get them stopped. So that's one of the reasons we're really supportive of Naira putting in new surfaces, putting in a safety rail. Um, making a lot of those upgrades, it's not only for the horses, it's for the humans too. Uh, we went out and changed insurance carriers. We're now working with a, a massive multinational company called Zurich. Uh, they have brought uh, outstanding claims management to the table, and they're getting guys back to work faster, uh, and that reduces our costs. So everyone's happy, right? The injured person is happy because they're getting back to work, and uh, we're happy, and the insurance company's happier because it's costing us a lot less money. A lot, yeah, a lot less money. So what we've done is we've lowered that rate from twenty-five dollars per hundred down to about fourteen dollars per hundred. So there's a big forty percent reduction. Now, on top of that, the trainers themselves, if they have good work records, they often have significant discounts off of that if no one in their barn uh, has been injured. So we've really brought these costs down. We've probably saved, and it's a little sketchy because we have one account for the riders and the trainers have accounts for their uh, backstretch employees, but we're saving about $4.5 million per year per year on work comp from where we were about five years ago. Um, so that those are costs directly born, would have been costs directly borne by the trainers and owners. So 
I obviously I want to talk. There's a lot of other things I want to talk about that are going to be more fun. I want to talk about. I want I to talk about. Someone's still listening. Uh, no, no, this is I'm labor and work comp. I think no, all the gamblers but, got off the call ten minutes ago. <laughs> well, if there's still they're, they're still there. We're going to talk about your BCBC score as well. But I also think it's important because I think a lot of times in this game, horse players are always talking about takeout and um and and I and it's obviously an important topic and something that our game needs to address if we want to be taken, you know, seriously against our competitors uh, of sports gambling, casino gambling, lottery, whatever it might be. And so I've, I think that you have a unique perspective as a gambler that represents the horseman of explaining and understanding where that 15% whips, you know, win play show takeout goes where, where, how is that being split up? And, and, and I think that it's also important to note that if the wager is taken, is, is taken through express bet or twin spires versus being taken through Naira bets, how it's different. Cause I think it's important to realize that it's not as simple as everyone might think that it is that, Oh, there will just, why just not drop it to 10%. Well, that 5% is accounted for. So everyone has to be on board with that. So I wanted you to, to talk a little bit about takeout as a whole, you know, specifically in New York. Okay. So uh, at the risk of alienating all my friends who are gamblers and all my constituents who are owners and trainers, I'm going to say a few things that seem contradictory if you follow like the basic racing presses approach to this but I think actually would work well together if we were able to update our system. And I don't know that we are. So I'm a little pie in the sky, but I want people to understand that. The first thing you have to understand is that the breakouts of, let's call it 19% blended take between the whips that you said are generally at about 15% and much of the, uh, exact as tries, multi-races that are, let's say, in the 20 to 25% range. So we're blended at 19, okay? There's so much complication due to where the bet is made, on what track it's made on, through through whose service or ADW you're betting, that there's literally dozens and dozens of calculations that need to be performed to figure out who's getting the money, okay? But I think people need the first thing they need to do is understand that about five points of that comes right off the top and goes to the tote company, Robert's Communication, uh, whatever gaming commissions are involved, other various uh, uh, straws, as I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of straws and they take 25 basis points here and 50 basis points there. That adds up pretty quickly. So it's not like the tracks and the horsemen and the ADWs have a full 19% to, to, to chop up. It's more like 14%. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is our current system is a little stilted, although less so in New York than it is at many other tracks. New York has the premium signal. Okay, it's what everyone wants to bet on, 
and Dave O'Rourke and Tony Olivato and their team have done a great job of driving the signal up, the signal price up, right, on the New York product, okay? I know people don't want to hear that or the gamblers don't want to hear that we're driving the price up because they think it's coming from their end. It's really not. Unless you are one of the largest gamblers in the country, and I have many people who think they are, but there's only like a hundred of you out there, it's really not affecting you, okay? The ADW may blame us for not giving you something you want, but that's, that's the reality. So if you have 15 points to break up, who should get what, okay? I like to use this example because I think it's something you can relate to. The Apple App Store for your phone, they charge about 30% to the app maker. The app maker keeps 70. And they're considered outrageously high. Why? Because they're a broker, right? John, you'd like to get 30% brokerage fee, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Okay. That's essentially what the ADWs are charging Naira, and we're getting the best rate in the country. <laughs> in many of those places, they're charging far more than that. Okay? So in many places, they're charging like 60% or half the money is going to the ADW. Okay? Now, I'd love to say there's ADWs out there, and then there's tracks, and then there's horsemen, but they're really all a hodgepodge of interconnected things, right? Churchill and Stronach, two of the largest track operators in the country, have very large ADWs. Naira has its own ADW that's, while not quite as big, is growing. So it's not like the ADW guys are separate from the track operators, right? There's all sorts of conflicting interests here. From my part, the guys who should be reaping the most of the money are those who are putting on the show those invested. That's the physical plants of the track, right? And the people working there and the horse owners and trainers, the guys who are buying the horses and supplying them to the races. The ADWs perform a service that is, uh, you know, it's a commodity. It's pretty easy to put an interface on top of our tote system. Okay, and the value add they have is negligible. Okay, their profit margin is quite good, so they want to defend that, and, and as they should. No one's, no one's, uh, no one is uh, is begrudging them that. It's just a fight to how you're going to cut up the pie. From my perspective, what would be best for the industry would be to do two things. And this is where all the haters will attack me from both sides, but we really need to be more price competitive. Okay. So I think in a perfect world, we would be cutting takeout some. Okay. Our pro clearly our product is not um, uh, staying competitive with other wagering options that are out there. So we do need to cut uh, our takeout. This is generally as an industry. However, however, I think the stilted way in which we rebate our customers is inherently unfair, okay? And if you cut your takeout enough, you should be able to reduce the difference in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in rebating, 
right? It's 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 patently unfair uh, to our recreational customers that they basically it's very very difficult for them if they have different pricing, and you can solve this by essentially doing two things at the same time: cutting the takeout and raising the source market fees, right, and leaving less money for the ADWs in the business. That would encourage our customers to play more, and B hopefully reap more money for the tracks and the um, and the horsemen, right? It's not like the tracks are all making money. You show me a track, a physical plant that's making money, I'd love to see it. So, so was that controversial I, enough for you? Or, the, or uh, not I really? think it's, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, look, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's the extremes, right? There's the, there's the, you know, I don't want to say the right or the left, but there's the up and the down, the up wants to raise takeout because that raises purses. And then there's the down who thinks that we should be operating on a, you know, a four and a half percent takeout and be better than sports betting, which, but, but they're not sustainable. They're not sustainable. Honestly, they're both completely wrong. It's four and a half. It, it, if four and a half points of takeout, we would not attract a, a legion of sports wagering customers. There's too many other issues that we have as a sport and our failure to innovate and the way we deliver our product that's just not up to snuff, right? That it's just not capturing people's attention. Most people don't wager sports because they, they're looking to make money, right? Most people wager it because it's entertaining for them. And they're not professionals. And I know there's a lot of guys on Twitter who think they're professionals, but they're not. The same being said, raising takeout is highly unlikely, highly unlikely to gain us more money because I think those last few dollars are highly elastic, right? Uh, Going back to econ, you know, 201, like the more we raise takeout, at the level they're already at, we're going to drive people out of the game. So I would actually say the reverse of both those sides. Yeah. And, and the thing, and the thing about it is, is people, we, we, we often like to be, well, there's certain people that like to compare the sports mod, you know, the sports wagering situation. But the truth of the matter is, is that the NBA major league baseball and the NFL, they operate, you know, sands the, the contribution from wagering. Now, don't get me wrong. The interest is good for them. People watching, you know, people watch their games because they were wagered on, but we're a little bit of a different model. Just the, the way that we are, the way that our sport is set up. In the, and I don't think there's a way to change that is that the wagering dollar is part of the equation of the game all working. Yeah. Oh, with, without wagering, our sport would be so drastically different. I don't think anyone could even conceive of it. Now, so a lot of people will, I'm sure there's a lot of players that will tell you that they feel like they deserve a rebate. If I go to Home Depot and I buy a thousand light bulbs, I'm going to get a discount versus the person who buys one. But maybe I'm just a little bit different and I don't know how you feel about this. I think I know how you feel. And I would imagine how Paul and Duke and Mike Maloney and Sean Borman and Marshall Graham would feel is I would rather have no rebate and lower takeout that allows 
players that have less of an edge to continue to play. I feel like I would do better in the long run in that scenario versus the scenario now where I'm getting a rebate. I I completely agree with you. I think if you're looking both for the health of the game and for if you're confident and good at wagering and you feel good, it shouldn't scare you. If, if, if takeout came down and rebates went away, if you're really good at what you're doing, it shouldn't scare you. And I think it would be much healthier. It would let people know that the scales aren't tipped against them. And I think it would change some of the wagering behavior because now you have a lot of people who are just chasing rebate, essentially. They're not actually trying to make money. They're just trying to lose in the single digits, so uh, percentage-wise, so that their rebate makes them profitable. Right? Yeah, I, exactly. And I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of, you know, I think that, you know, we talk about the, the, the CAWs and the computer wagering teams and, and they, they have, you know, I think they're, I think sometimes they get this like derogatory tag on them as if they're like the bad guys. And I don't think they're the bad guys. I do think that they make the game more complicated for the average player, but, but I also don't fault them for it. I don't, I don't, they're not doing anything wrong in my opinion, but those, those teams are chasing the rebate. They want to, they want to, if they can break even, then they're going to make 10% on all the money that they turn. And that's a winning proposition for them. Right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. They're doing nothing wrong. All they're doing is outworking, out hustling, out thinking, out raising capital more than everyone else. Uh, so I, I completely agree with that. And in fact, I would say that while it presents an issue, right, for a competitive, uh, gaming atmosphere uh, in a balanced uh, competitive field, uh, what we really need to understand is technology isn't going away, right? Uh, they're going to be able to do stuff regardless of whether they're given access or not. And it may, they may not have their full suite of services, but it the idea that we're going to limit them, okay, is is farcical, in, in our modern environment. The technology advance is only going in one direction. I do agree. I heard Paul uh, Matisse interviewed a few years ago, and him and I have talked about this a lot. What we fail to do is give our more retail players better tools. Okay. We're not putting better uh, technology tools in their hands. So they understand hey, this exact is overvalued or undervalued, or uh, uh, here's what the money flow looked like in this race, right? Things that the computer teams are looking at, we need to do that in a real-time way for our uh, retail customers. And it it seems with the whole Robin Hood GameStop uh, nonsense that goes on, it it actually... uh, should mimic some of what like Ameritrade and groups like that did to lower the costs, but to give retail investors better tools. We understand if you're working a job and you come home at night to trade a little, you're probably not going to beat someone who's doing it all day long. However, if you have better tools and better access to information, 
that lets you be more knowledgeable and quite frankly, a little bit less of a sucker, you're going to do a much better job in terms of competing and holding your own. And now, that you really should be our industry goal is to expand the reach of technology and some of the ideas that the computer players are using. They're not that complicated, many no, of them. No, they're not. Right? Now, you, when you say when you say we, I'm curious uh, a couple so a two-part question. I'm curious who you think should be responsible for that 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 growth and development. Who should be how should the bill be paid for um, improving those situations? And I've heard you say this before, and I completely agree with you. We don't take ourselves serious in terms of modernization, right? All these other sports around us that we point to for the, their successes, they're modernizing their game. Who, who is responsible for modernizing racing? And like you said, creating those tools to help the, the, uh, you know, the commercial player. Well, I think it's the three groups that are reaping the money, right? The ADWs, the tracks, and the horsemen are responsible because we're the ones getting the money on the back end. I think what you see is uh, two things. One is racing's age-old problem of there's too many chefs and not enough kind of coordinated uh, growth and coordinated decision-making, and everyone is just looking to protect their uh, little fiefdom. Uh, two, and two, it's very hard to attract investment, uh, and racing has very been very insular about this, but it's hard to attract investment in a low-growth or shrinking um or, or shrinking pie economy, which is what we've been. You need someone willing to take a chance uh, to invest some money and say, I'm going to grow this pie, or I'm going to do it differently and grab much more market share. And I'm going to, you know, I actually don't think it's that much money. We're gambling about $11 billion uh, within uh, domestically, you know, to spend five, $10 million would have a big bang for your buck if we spent it on technology. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it's, 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 it's crazy. I open up my, my stock account, I hit refresh and it's like instant. And you know, I, I want to bet an exacta and I have to wait 20 seconds for the probables to get updated. Right. Yeah, no, this is all part of the problem. Uh, we don't have big enough pipes. The, the websites should be constantly refreshed. There's no real new products. Um, no, you know, gamblers just don't have the tools they need to compete in like a modern uh, wagering slash investing architecture. Um, it's just really in this last year that all the tracks are now in HD. Like, like we were watching things not in HD. Until I mean, I used to, back in the day, back in the day on Twin Spires before they banned it in Texas, I used to bet Calder just because it was in HD. Of course, <laughs> it's a, who wants to see this blurry? I don't know who's coming. What is that? The eleven? The four? Who can? Like, it's crazy. It's crazy. We're using technology 
I, I saw something today that set me off a little. Randy Morse from Buyer Associates, and and look, uh, those guys have revolution. Well, thirty years ago, they revolutionized how we think about speed, but they're excited that they're going back to the teletimer. Uh, you know, because they're upset with how Equibase is timing races. I'm thinking to myself, wait, the teletimer? Like, that's like 80-year-old technology. Like, I look at what you can see. If someone wants to look into this, look at next-gen stats and what they can do in NFL games, right? They can show, hey, on this scramble, Patrick Mahomes ran 19.6 miles per hour, uh, or he threw the ball 40.5 miles per hour, and they have every XY coordinate of every player and the ball on the field, right? Like imagine what someone could do with that information if we had that for horse racing. Oh, I mean, dude, I mean, Trackus was like, Trackus, I did a whole study before the 2014 NHC where I did these track profiles. I did the average winning distance of winners, um, uh, using the track of stuff, but it was, it was a nightmare because it's not in a consumable form. It's not in a downloadable consumable form. You had to like manually type that stuff in and you know, that's problematic. And if, if you can't let guys loose in R and in Python and these languages, that, these computer language that guys are using today, it's really no different than doing it by hand. But there's exactly. so much data out there, and it's so cheap to get a server on AWS. It, this would open us up. It would, you know, we're years behind on this stuff. Um, and it, it's that sort of commitment that we need to make as an industry. And you're right. I don't know who we is. <laughs> um, right. But I know the industry needs to attract more investment in this stuff and be willing to partner with folks they've never done it before. But, you know, we have all these small silos within the industry of guys making a living. And I get it. Like, if you're making a living doing something like you've been doing for the last 30 years and you don't feel you need to innovate, like, like we don't have a lot of competition. No. You know, and and it, it, it's, it would be phenomenal. You know, it would be phenomenal if you were able to to kind of open those those doors. And, 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 to be, and I'll, be, I'll be frank, I've, I've had some pretty good conversations with Jason Wilson, who, who is the CEO at, at Equibase, and, and he asks questions and he listens. And I understand that, that Equibase in the jockey club, they, they make money and it's a hard thing for them to kind of work backwards on. But I would encourage anyone or them to, to consider the positive impact that a base level of free data what the positive impact would be for the game and for the industry. Um, Cause I think people would still buy premium products. Oh, I agree better than that. They would buy data feeds that they'll build their own premium product and encourage more people to wager. And I'll be honest, let's be fair to Jason. It's not his, it's not his fault, right? He gets demonized because he's the president of Equibase, but 50% of his company is owned by the racetracks themselves. Right, 100%. Right? And most of the racetracks, most of the racetracks get a dividend from, from Equibase that is meaningful to them. That's not the case in New York, right? Like 
New York is New York sells has so much data about it that we'd probably be better off giving it away. But a lot of small tracks around the country, you know, that's someone's job. That's someone they would fire if they didn't get their um, <laughs> their dividend. And they don't, you know, many of these tracks just don't want to hear it. No. Now, that that can lead me down the road into a whole other routine I do about zombie tracks. Um, and maybe they shouldn't be part of the system anymore because it's just not important to them. But uh, what do you mean by what do you mean by zombie tracks? Well, you have many, many tracks, probably the majority that receive uh, almost all of what I would call their 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 purse money come from non wagering. Okay, Uh, so. You, you, whether they have a, an attached casino or they get a grant from the state or they get a grant or they have VLTs or whatever. Look, we get it in New York, but we existed six months this year without any VLT money. Okay. We're getting in the high 30s, high 30% range uh, of money from VLTs. There's tracks that are getting 80, 90% of their purse money is is coming from non-paramutual wagering. Okay? So what you have is you have casino companies who own these tracks who basically see the racing as a lost leader. So why are they going to invest in the racing? They just want to keep it as minimal cost as possible, right? They're not going to invest in the backside. They're not going to invest in the surface. They're not going to invest in their broadcast feed. And that's what I call a zombie track. So you don't see any innovation. You don't. You basically just see them saying, "You know what? I want to keep this uh, to a minimum." And they do that because in most situations, they got their casino on the back of the racetrack. True. Oh, a hundred percent. Right. So you you have this situation in a lot of places uh, where communities don't want casinos or gambling in their you know next to a school or next to their church or what have you. So the racetracks made a lot of sense because there's already gambling there. So politicians say, well, we'd like slot machines, but we don't want our constituents to be upset with us. Well, let's put it at the racetrack where they can't complain. There's already gambling. Makes sense, right? Great idea. But now you have companies that whose primary focus is to run casinos buying up racetracks. This is essentially what went on for 20 years. They buy up racetracks, not with the idea that they want to run a racetrack, with the idea that they want to run a casino, which is far more profitable. Okay. Uh, VLTs or slot machines have uh, a much higher takeout than we deal with. Uh, and they don't, they don't eat either. <laughs> yes, they don't eat. Uh, you just need one guy to, to vacuum, vacuum the floor. Like, you know, it's a lot easier to run. And so this makes a lot of sense, except for the horsemen and people who care about the track, you know, now you're underinvested. Now you're even worse. You're just not even thought about. You're an afterthought. And you see people suffering because of this. And it's it's uh, it's a real problem we have. There, how many of the groups that run racetracks are focused on racing. We're extremely fortunate in New York that that's the case. 
But Absolutely. go around the country and think about who's really focused on racing. Do you think the Horse Racing uh, Integrity and Safety Act would is going to put pressure on those zombie tracks, or do you not think that those two things will be related? Um, that's a great... No, I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on them uh, to conform and spend money on things that they would prefer to avoid. Uh, the added veterinary personnel they're going to need, uh, the higher level of scrutiny that they're going to face. Um, I, I actually don't think it's unreasonable from a business standpoint. I don't know. I'm, I'm not recommending this for anyone. But if you're one of those tracks, do some of those tracks decide they don't want to participate um, in the paramutual, the in the interstate paramutual system, right? So they'll under the law, they'll still be allowed to run their track. The question is, is will they send their signal across state lines? Because if they don't, they would not have to comply. So, so they I would think just you'll have tracks track. facing that sort of decision. Uh, I, I think we're all. I think we're all. I think we're all imagining a couple of tracks, right? I don't want to call anyone out, but is can 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 that track survive without the simulcast situation? Oh, I, I think they can. Yeah, I, I, that, that's the interesting thing. Is those tracks? Some of those tracks gain such. I guess on their import signal is a problem, but in terms of their export, there's such little volume on it. Um, on them that it'll be difficult. I don't think it's as difficult as you think it is. Yeah. They can just run six horse, five claimers and, and it's not going to really change much because all the money's coming from the, from the ding, ding, ding machines inside. Yep. That's, that's correct. And they can keep the ding, ding, ding. It'll be interesting. I I think it's going to be, you know, look, this isn't going to happen for a couple of years, but there's some interesting decisions to make. Right. Um, For some of these places. Yeah, I mean, I've long felt like we're oversaturated, and I think that's why, you know, people always go to Hong Kong for being the the end all of of the perfect horse racing model, and I don't think that's the case. I think they do a lot of things right and a lot of things better than we do, but I think we do some things better than they do. But and it's always important to look at people around you and see what they're doing. But I, I do think that the fact that they run two days a week is a huge part of their success. It's a thing. It's not just it, you know. Goldstream's going to run tomorrow. I may or may not play. You know, Aqueduct's going to run on Thursday. Yep. I may or may uh, not look, play. But on if it was only on Saturday and I only had that one day, I'm playing because I can't. I, I don't want to wait. You know, it's pretty clear that the industry needs massive help in terms of coordination, right? Not just in terms of saturation of running product on top of each other but running the same conditions at different tracks that are that are reachable to each other um we need a lot of help in that regard joe i almost almost joined a very special fraternity that i was i i I really want to be a part of i'll be honest with you um and that is breeders cup betting challenge champions i was close I was close and I got snapped by my friend, which makes it even worse. You won in 2017. Is that you? 16 or 17? 
I, I honestly I forget. I think it's sixteen, but it could be seventeen. Yes. Either way, fifteen it, was it Keeneland. Like fifteen was Keeneland. Four or five yeah. Years ago. Yeah, 15 was Keeneland American Pharaoh, 16 was you, 17 was Del Mar, 18 was Churchill, 19 Santa Anita, 20 Keeneland. Okay, yeah, you're 16. I I tried. I tried to join okay. the fraternity. Ah, it's nothing like it. Nothing like it. Now, going into that, um so the the, the winning wager was a cold exacta Arrogate and California Chrome, correct? That's correct. Was that the plan all along, or did you kind of, you know, like like a lot of us in these contests, you have this idea of what you want to do, and then your bankroll says, "No, no, no, sir, you can't do that." Uh, a little bit of that. So, uh, the idea all along was try to amass as much money as possible to bet on Arrogate in the last race figuring he would be like uh, two to one-ish, right? Maybe five to two. And so we, I had two tickets with two races left, and I took a shot on one ticket, uh, about 20000 to win. I forget the European filly um, in the turf race. I forget her name. Uh and she didn't, she ran like fourth. She did nothing. So I was out of bullets there. I had about fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars left. I want to say, it's, I want to say it's found. I think it's found. Found. That sounds right. That sounds right. I will never be the guy who's like, Oh, this Philly and that I'm like, I, for, it's probably a good trait for a gambler. Which is uh, funny not, though. It's a good trait for a gambler, but not for one who's enjoying the races of like, I totally forget all the horses like two races later. Yeah. But it's just funny. Like, as like, as a guy who I would imagine looks at a lot of pages and pedigrees and, 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 and has to be aware of, of stallions and, and what's hot and what's not and what's going on. I, I, I find that surprising. Yeah. Well, there's some horses I remember, but it's typically like not necessarily ones I've made through bets. So like groovy, who was well before your time, Jonathan. My friend's dad owned that horse. Sprinters I've ever seen really captivated me back at Belmont back in the mid eighties. And like, I loved watching that horse just fire out of there and come flying around the turn. Um, you know, so, so the ghost zapper, I remember ghost zapper in like a one X or a two X in the slop at Belmont. And he looked hopelessly beaten with like a 16th to go. And he won by five. Like, there's there's performances like that that I remember, but it's not necessarily betting wise, especially my last 10 years of betting, even though we, I won the BCBC on Arrogate, like I'm much more like I was talking at the beginning about ticket construction and and multiple outs and pathways to success. So I'm much more focused on like, oh, in that sequence, I didn't go deep enough here and in instead of the horses themselves, which is the ultimate issue for a gambler, because the more you employ those techniques and you become successful, the better you get. But you lose some of the joy of the game, too, which is right. kind of the bittersweet part, I guess. Well. And and so I, I realized that I, I was I got excited and I, I interrupt you after found. So you bet found and missed. 
missed, struck out. So we, you get to the last race. I, I think I had like 16,000 uh, left over on another ticket, uh, which put me in about 30th place. It was a year with a lot of favorites and the leader only had $60,000. Okay. Which by like the last couple of years, uh, winning levels wouldn't even put you in the top 10. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, so, uh, and I'm proud to admit, Hey, look, I don't, I'm like the 2011 giants. I'm happy to win the Super Bowl with the worst record. You know? they, they, they pay for first place, no matter what the total was. No one remembers. <laughs> um, anyway, so the, the numbers were pretty low. So even though I was in about 30th um, with about 16,000, getting to 60 wasn't unreasonable. Right. And unfortunately though, Arrogate opened up at like eight to five. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's not so great. <laughs> um, that might not get me where I want to go. So we were just, I was sitting with my friends who we were looking at the board and discussing different options. And in discussing, we we're like, look, we love Arrogate, but like California Chrome looks way better than everyone else. And look, this exacta here pays 10 bucks when it should, you know, fair odds would have been like $6, maybe six and a half. And that's exactly kind of jumping back to what we were talking about before. That's just the sort of tool that our retail customers need to be able to evaluate. Yeah. Right. Like that was a massive overlay, right. In a very accessible race and accessible, what should have been one of the top two options and, you know, and I, we also, there was also additional equity available through the prize money, but just something like that is helpful for people. Um, so anyway, it's $10. I was like, I don't think I can get my money in any better than that. So I bet almost all of the, it on that. And then I played a couple of like gimmick hundred dollar straight tries, you know, with, with California Chrome, maybe running out of the money. Right. Um, and what was interesting, all, all, all with arrogate on top, right? Correct. Correct. Yep. Um, what was interesting was really how few people in the top 10 actually fired to win. And I think that helped me like someone else should have had that. They always lay up. People lay up. That's the thing about that contest that people don't realize is it's a lot of damn money. And I go into that contest like it's not real. Other contests, I actually treat like money in my head a little bit. But that one, I know that I have no chance to win it if I treat it like money. I think that's the best. That's the only way to do it. Except it's six o'clock on Saturday afternoon and you got 50,000 in your pocket and you're looking at fourth place, which is what, another 20,000 or something, 30,000? And and you're saying, hey, seventy thousand's real money. I don't want to. I don't want to screw that up. Yeah. But you're right. What happens is, is if you have a few hundred entrants, you're really not competing, right? That that's the contest is a little different than a regular contest mm-hmm. in that you're not really competing against everyone because not everyone has the uh, the gumption to to basically treat it like funny money. 
Exactly. Now, when you, so I've made some large wagers, obviously in contests. I, I've done some $16,000 doubles. I've, I've done some $15,000 doubles. I bet 40,000 on Monomoy Girl in last year's Breeders' Cup. How did you deploy your wager? Did you do it? Because I've always find this to be fascinating. And obviously in the Breeders' Cup, it doesn't matter that much because it's such a big pool. Did you do the whole 16 and one punch? Did you do half of it and wait? And did the odds change for a couple of seconds um, after you made the wager? So I don't think the machines at Santa Anita actually let me do it all in one punch. I seem to remember I needed to do like, like multiple tickets, maybe like three, five thousands and a thousand, something like that. Um, so there's that. And the odds didn't change at all. Um, surprisingly or not, I guess that's one of the, the good things about uh, betting into that sort of, I mean, they clearly changed. But they didn't change enough. Maybe they went from 1080 to 1020 or something like that. Right, right. right. Yeah, of course. Um, but they didn't change enough that it was noticeable. And so, I guess that's the advantage in the Breeders' Cup. If you are going to make a large wager like that, you do have some coverage. You know, you can't do that at uh, if you're playing the, you know, your local contest on a on a Friday afternoon. And and I don't know if this is right or wrong. I actually, when I did it, I I got uh, you know my math my my go to math gurus Eric Bialik and 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 Marshall Graham who are I always go to about math questions. I was playing in a Del Mar contest one time. I just want to get your take on this. And I bet a fifteen thousand dollar exacta with uh, I mean a double, excuse me, with Unique Bella and Roadster when Roadster debuted. And my whole thought was, if I'm going to do this. I'm going to, in a, in, a, in a pool on a Saturday at, at Del Mar, which isn't the, the largest in the world, obviously, I'm going to do it at the first flash because it's going to make a bunch of other players throughout looking at the double probable say, what? I'm getting 12, you know, 1200 for this double combination. And I felt like all those players that had 22 minutes to look at it would start taking other combinations that looked attractive. And that I knew the computers were going to save me at the end of the day by correcting in that last click to correct what I, what I did. If you're going to make a large wager like that, do you think you make it early or late? That's a great question. I, I really, I like that thinking. Uh, Cause you, you have a pretty good idea that the computers are going to, are going to, uh, are going to snap you back to pretty close to where it should be. I guess the question though, is do some of those computers programs, are they watching order flow and adjusting to that? I guess I would always have been as late as possible just because I like for those who are listening, who may not realize this, like in many of these races, like 60% of the money is coming in in the last minute. Right. Right. So everything you're seeing before that can be a little, uh, hazy to say the least. Um, yeah, that's, I, I want to think about that for, for, for right. Right. I, I mean, I, I don't like that kind of running guys off your price. You yeah, know? I, I just, yeah, exactly. And, and I also made people say, Oh, I'm not playing this double. I can't play this double. And it just continued to go up 10 cents, 20 cents, 10 cents, 30 cents, 20 cents, 20 cents dollar. And it got back to where I had kind of, and it was a little bit still skewed. It had kind of gotten back to where I wanted it to get. And in hindsight, it, 
you know, you can't make that kind of play in a normal situation. You said something very important when you're talking about these contests. There's a justification for aggressive plays because of the equity of the prize pool. When I bet that 40000 on a Monomoy girl at even money, you're thinking I bet $40,000 on a horse who hasn't made a bunch of starts this year that's drawn to the outside and da 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 da, da. but I'm thinking I'm getting even I'm you know I'm 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 taking an even money shot but if I can hit her then I'm set to be right where I want to be in position to make a safe play to get into the into the top 3 and and I think the equity in these contests is is very important in the decision making Oh 100% you know I I was thinking when you brought this up by making a large play in the double, it also may give you some coverage in the last race so that the horse you need, if one of your competitors bets on it, that the last race odds may be lower than you might perceive because the computers will pick that up, right? The, uh, the double, the, the double will pays are very predictive and is certainly in their models. And they may drive that price lower, which you don't care about because you're already essentially pot committed in the double on them. But if someone else tries to beat you with that same horse, you may gain a little bit of protection there um, by by forcing more computer action on them. That's, yeah, that's, that's a- beautiful. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that next time someone... Cause I like to play doubles in like I've done it. I did it in the Churchill Breeders' Cup. I went all in with like 50, 40... Uh, how much did I have? 40,000 maybe. I went all in in doubles because what I like to do in that situation is I like to tie up the late double to just in a safe way to get me to that number that I want to get to. Um, I'm not taking any stands at that point. I'm just risking a lot of money. Right. Well, the other good thing about it, I, I love that strategy. The other good thing about it is it takes you off the board. Right. So no guys are, who play contests and I learned a lot uh, from smiling Dave Gutfriend on this, right? Is they're playing the other guys. What does Kinchin like to do in this situation? You know, what does Matisse like to do in this situation? But if you commit a lot in the doubles, you're actually off the board for the last race often. Yeah, you know? you're hidden. You're hidden. I, I And I think, to, just to be clear for the people, that are, I think in the Breeders' Cup, when you bet all in or you bet a large amount in a double, it does not show up in that first you're, you're you, you just stay on the board. There is a lot of other contests though, that you go to zero. So you disappear. Right. But I think of the breeders cup, you stay there until the bets closed. Oh, um, that's interesting. You, you stay there till the bets closed, but nonetheless, um, you know, I like the fact that you only get taken out once when, when you're looking at the, at the odds, I just, and I just like to, you know, anyways, but so did you know when, when it came in, did you know you were good or were you sweating? Oh, I had no idea. I just figured I'm top five. Okay. Right. So we did a, a, we did a, the guys I was with, I was with about a dozen guys and we actually did a run out. Most of these races, we, we just, when the horses hit the wire, we're like dashing to the exit and we actually jumped on a flight to, to Las Vegas that night. So we're actually on the way to the airport. And I called the, the, the aforementioned Maven, Dave Gutfriend. 
I was like, because he was like in about fifth. And I was like, hey, Dave, I had that last race exact. I think I have like 65,000. Like, where am I? He goes, oh, you got to be like high up. But we didn't really know. And then he uh, he played on the speakerphone, uh, the, the kind of final five countdown. And once I heard the guy in second, who I think was Charlie Davis, um, at like 61 or 62,000, I I knew I won. <laughs> oh, that's the best. That's the best. I, I had a similar story that didn't end so well when I, I was at Keeneland um, and I I ran up to where I knew Tim Schramm and the team had set up kind of their base for the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. And I was on the phone with Marshall Graham and uh, I look at Tim and he gives me the thumbs up. And I was like, did I win? Did I win? And then he looked at me and he goes, no, you got second. And I was like, oh, I said, Marshall, you won. And he was, so it was, uh, it's like know. the worst 150,000 you ever won. <laughs> but you know what? They pay so good up top. It wasn't even that. I mean, it was about a hundred thousand dollar difference, I think. Um, but, and I'm not, I'm not putting Marshall on blast when I say this, but Marshall bought a house in Saratoga with his winning. So I'll make sure that I get to use the back house often. I hope it has a pool. I can bring my kids over. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Joe, I do want to talk to you a little bit about your, your football background. I, 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 I love the fact that I, I'm annoyed that I didn't know that, but um, so you played free, you played strong safety at Yale. Yes. Poorly, poor, not, not too many snaps, but I was on the team three years, had a great experience, have some great friends from there and uh, actually met my mentor, the defensive backfield coach is a guy named Don Brown, who uh, has, has become the most famous defensive coordinator in college football. Uh, most recently at Michigan and uh, starting this year, will be at uh, university of Arizona. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what, what does, I'm, I'm assuming that the defense that you played in is the defense he still runs or has it changed quite a bit? No, it's changed considerably. Considerably. Hey, it's 30 years ago already. I hate to tell you. Um, but yeah, it's it's changed considerably. We actually were at, um, at Plymouth State College. He was the head coach and I was the offensive coordinator at a little school up in New Hampshire uh, in the early 90s. And he changed the defense there. And then... Uh, he, I think a lot of what he's doing now, he changed it again after that, but a lot of what he's doing comes from a kind of college four, three base, which we didn't run it. Yeah. We were all eight man front, uh, back, back in those days. Yeah. Uh, this is these kind of conversations the days when you have to stop the run. Right? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. And, um, and I've always been envious of coaches Sorry, horse racing people. You're going to deal with this for a minute. I I've always been envious of coaches that were able to, that were not able, but were forced or sometimes able to coach both sides of the ball. My career was always, it was all offense the entire time, fully focused all in. And so I think that when you, you mentioned you were the offensive coordinator, I feel like that's such an edge having coached both sides of the ball. I couldn't agree more. I actually started my first job was at a little school in New York, upstate New York called Hamilton College. And I was the defensive backfield coach there just because 
I just graduated from college and that's what I knew, right? And I literally met the offensive coordinator at Hofstra on a plane ride to the National Coaches Convention. And he got me an interview and they hired me as the wide receivers coach. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about wide receiver play. And he says, don't worry, Uh, you work hard and you listen and you learn, but you know a lot about secondary play and that'll be helpful to us because that's who the wide receivers are going against. Um, So I got indoctrinated early into the run and shoot uh, system and just found the interplay fascinating. Uh, And I can't agree with you more, like the ability to understand what the coverage structure is, is critical right? To understand where you should throw the ball. Right. Because the and, run and shoot, if I'm not mistaken, it's, it was a little bit, you know, before when I got heavily involved, obviously I think June Jones was pretty famous run and shoot. When he came to SMU, we went and studied them a little bit and it, tell me if I'm wrong here. It's a whole lot of not just quarterback reads, but also receiver reads on their routes. Like if, you know, if if you got a soft corner, you're not gonna you're gonna sit down. If it, you're if he if they you know you're playing they're playing cover two. It, there's all these different adjustments. Is is that is that the correct? I, I, yes, that's exactly right. So you see a lot of it now in the air raid, right? Because Hal Mummy, the guy who uh, people think of as the inventor of the air raid, uh, learned a lot from the run and shoot guys. Right. But the run and shoot had a couple real things. Is one, there's a lot of option routes. Right. So uh, they have one package where you have uh, making this a little simple for the populace, but a single receiver to one side and three receivers to the field called choice, where the single receiver had about six or seven uh, different routes he could run, depending on what the coverage looked like. And when you're doing it properly, him and the quarterback are making the same read based on what the coverage structure is. Right? We, we we called uh, our single cut out route concept choice. We only ran right. the out well, route the out, out of it route, at the high school level. Yes, that's the basic. The, the speed cut out is the basic choice. That's your first thing. If they give that to you, you're going to take it every time. Right? Right. But and then, then we would, we, then we would take off, off of it too. Yep. Yes. Yeah. No, you have like six routes off of it. Yeah. It's and beautiful. that's. And, yeah. And so you have a lot of route adjustment, number one. The key, which is now not even, this is so standard now, but what made it so revolutionary was the spacing of the inside receivers and your box count, right? All this box counting now, which for, again, for those non-football coaches out there, how many defenders are they basically committing to the run, Right. The run and shoot was really the first offense that made the defense declare with their strong safety and one of their outside linebackers, are you going to play the run or the pass? You can't play them both, right? And I think that concept, and they come up to the line, and if you had, uh, you know, if if your guys were removed out of the box, if you gave me five in, too deep, we're running it. And if you give me six in, you know, single high safety, uh, which is, you know, three deep or man free, we're going to throw it. And you're going to be wrong every time. Yeah, that was the birth of the no huddle offense is taking that taking that out of your quarterback's hands. I mean, I remember when I first started getting coaching, it was the big that was the, the, the beginning of the look back error 
where they would, we would come out and we would get in that, like you called it earlier, we'll call that, that tray look, that three wide receiver set to the field, single receiver to the boundary. And then you get set and you look back. And if they're in a too high look with one inside linebacker and they're respecting the tray side of the play, then you run draw, you run zone, you run whatever you want to run inside, but you take it out of the quarterback's hand and you make it to, you know, allow the coaches to make those decisions. And that's where that kind of look back, uh, no huddle thing came from. Yeah, well, look down by you is where so much of it was was really mastered. You had the Houston Gamblers, right, with Jim Kelly before he was with the Buffalo Bills. And I believe June Jones was there with him, and they were unbelievable. Uh, I'm sorry, Houston may even have been Mouse Davis, uh, who June played quarterback for at Portland State. And then when Warren Moon did it, uh, it the Houston Oilers, uh, they were fantastic. Warren Moon was unbelievable. Um, and then, what, you know, what Texas was... Tech, the, kind of the more recent version with Mike Leach and kind of combining with the air raid at Texas Tech, is, uh, it was, you know, it was, it, was, it was really great to see. What, what led you away from coaching? Uh, to, well, sadly, my dad passed away in 1996 and he had a business that needed running and I was the only child and, uh, <laughs> I kind of just got drafted basically. Um, I actually went back to it about seven years later. I coach after selling the business, uh, I went back to it and coached at Northeastern and UMass uh, for a few more years, uh, I, I recruited, I didn't get the pleasure of coaching him, but, uh, I recruited a name, kid named Victor Cruz, who went on to, uh, fame and fortune with the New York Giants. Uh, but, uh, and then I guess I got to an age, I was probably in my mid thirties at that point, where I was like, you know, unless you make it quickly in this business, it's the... It's kind of a dog life, right? It's It's great being Nick Saban and some of these guys who are making astronomical fees, but most coaches are, are, you know, don't get paid great. And you go town to town and eight years of coaching, I think I was at five different schools. So that wasn't really conducive. And as it so happens, that's just at the time that I started pin hooking. So this kind of ties right back to that siphon filly. I was at UMass. It's spring practice. uh, And right before practice started, I listened to the auction on my cell phone. Uh, We had a night practice and I listened to the filly sell for 500,000. And so it it just seemed like a fortuitous time. Uh, You're like, coach, I'm out of here. (laughs) <laughs> not as good as Marshall Graham saving all that money to buy a house, but pretty good. <laughs> Coach, I'm gone. I'm gone. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, it just dawned on me now that I've got you here before we wrap up. It is, uh, it is Super Bowl week. Do you, do you have any feelings, thoughts, opinions about uh, what we might see on Sunday? Um, well, as a diehard New York giant fan, a guy who, who saw Doug Coder play tailback for them back in the seventies, you know, I could never root for Tom Brady, <laughs> um, <laughs> no matter what. So I'll be rooting for Kansas. I mean, watching Patrick Mahomes and the stuff Andy Reed has done, 
for me is very exciting. Uh, from a let's just call it from an offensive coach's perspective, I see you have a kind of evolved version of the West Coast offense. What Andy Reid's done is take his West Coast offense, Bill Walsh principles, and um, and modernize them and work in all the kind of stuff the NFL's adapted from the college game, the the quick throws. Um, it's really something to see when that offense is clicking against the Bruce Arians kind of uh, vertical passing game uh, from the from the Sid Luckman Don Coriel school. So it's a, from an offensive football perspective, it, there's some real differences there, which I like watching. I'll be rooting for the Chiefs, but I got apparently all the sharp money is on. Uh, Tampa Bay at minus three and a half. I don't know what that means, but, uh, you know, I, that's just, I like that's just Tom Brady. That's, that's just, look, I, I, there's about five games a year. I love, and I'll miss a couple of them, but I absolutely love the under because for a couple of reasons, and you'll understand this two weeks to prepare is a huge edge for the defense especially when there's 17 film, they had 17 game films to look at. So everything that the chiefs can do off of this and off of that and this and that, and the same thing can be said for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They've had a time, they've had time to look at it, time to review it. You get that extra gas when you're a coach, when it's a super bowl, you can stay up a little bit later. You can get up a little bit earlier. You can work a little bit harder all of these scenarios are going to be covered. The other thing is, is I think when there's two good quarterbacks and a good defense and a serviceable defense, the games get played between the thirties. You know, Tom's not going to really turn it over a bunch. Um, you know, Mahomes isn't going to turn it over a bunch. They're going to get first downs. And when they stall, they're going to punt. They're going to get first downs. When they stall, they're going to punt. There's not going to be any, there's not going to be a bunch of short fields. I love the under in this game. Love it. So it's interesting you say that because I would feel very confident about Kansas city in the over, except all the injuries to the Kansas city offensive line. And the great strength of Tampa Bay is their defensive line and pass rush. Right. Right. So that gives me pause um, due to that. So yeah, it's uh yeah, that's it. I like that theory. I like that theory. Yeah, you know, keep it in, keep it in the, uh, you know, keep it out of the red zone is is the way I look at that. Um, Joe, I look, I, I, uh, there's times where I finish these and I think that's going to be good, and there's times I finish them and I feel very proud and excited for for people to hear it. I, I, I think I told you earlier. I think that I feel comfortable knowing that you're in a position that can that can. Uh, that can help us as horse players and also help the industry as a whole. And um, I think that there's a a handful of people in this game that are uniquely qualified to speak on all fronts. And that means from the gambling standpoint, from the ownership breeder standpoint, and then also the racetrack operator standpoint, I I feel like there's just not a lot of people that can do that. And, and I think that, that, uh, you are one of those people that can do that. That can speak to all sides of it. And, and, uh, and I'm, and I'm very thankful you're involved because 
I feel like that's uh we got a better shot at keeping this thing going with you in the mix. Well, first off, John, thank you for having me. And those really kind words. I will tell you, I've lost money in every one of those endeavors. So <laughs> I, I think I have a good handle on them. Uh, there's no, Losing money teaches you so much more than making money. I'll tell you right now. Um, oh, yeah. And I guess the last thing is it's kind of let's tie the football back into it. And I think you got it exactly right. Um, there's a quote I used to use when I was a coach. You know, you got to have all these motivational quotes. It's uh, Benjamin Franklin. And he said, we can all hang together or we'll all hang separately. Right. And I think racing needs to understand that. Right. Everyone gets in their foxhole and wants more for themselves or their group. And if we don't have a healthy ecosystem, uh, starting with the breeders, if there aren't enough people who want horses to race, we need breeders to produce them. The, The owners themselves have to think of the value proposition for them. Is this worth my time, effort and money? Right. Uh, Hey, I just spent $50,000. That's a lot of money. Like they they better get something out of that, a reward. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's experience, you know, uh, but the tracks need to exist and the gamblers need their own value proposition. If they think uh, that the odds are tilted against them, they're not going to participate. And we all need to understand that about each other. Otherwise, uh, the ecosystem is going to crumble. Couldn't have said it. Uh, couldn't have said it any better. I completely agree. I, I always, uh, I always say, uh, you know, my 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 quick quote for that exact same thing is, is that it's it's less about your piece of the pie and how do we make the pie bigger. And there's so many entities and, and horse players included that are that are considered or are only concerned with their piece of the pie. Um. So. You know, that's, that would be my message to everyone is how can we make the pie bigger and, and worry less about your piece of it? I, I uh, think we, today, we should end on that because we're not going to get any better than that. Joe, you're the best. You're going to be a repeat, uh, a repeat guest at some point. We'll talk soon. I really appreciate I you wait. for the time. This is great. I love that you're going in depth and uh, I think it's, it's a great forum for people. I feel smarter um, that I did two hours ago. And, and I hope you do as well, understanding some of the behind the scenes of, of the game and and also knowing a little bit more about identifying how many guys are in the box and a little bit more about the run and shoot. So I was, man, Joe, I appreciate you taking the time. I I hope that the audience, uh, enjoyed that as much as I did. I, I think that, there's so many things about this game that are behind the scenes or, or a little bit deeper than I think we on the as a from fan standpoint or from a horse player standpoint that we fully understand. And I think that there's um, this game is in a better position if we all learn more about each other's portions of the game. And I've always encouraged racetrack operators to learn more about the betting side, the horse player. That's uh, why I'm so excited to have someone like Nate Newby in a position of power at Santa Anita and Aiden Butler in a position of power at, at the Strana group and um, Tony Alivado and, and Dave O'Rourke who, who listens to, to Tony Alivado and people like Joe Applebaum, um, Jim Goodman at Keeneland. The, these people that understand the horse player give me a little bit of 
uh, comfort in knowing that that our needs are at least being represented uh, at those tables when decisions are being made. So uh, Joe's a great example of that and uh, really happy to have him on. And I, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to, that was, a, it was a long episode. So I'm going to, I'm going to thank, uh, the, I'm going to get better at this. I'm going to thank PTF. I'm going to thank Drew, uh, our CFO. I want to thank uh, Naomi, Talk Racing to Me, Maddie Ice, The Matt Bernier Show, Spencer, Red Board Rewind, Billy and Michelle, The Owner's Box, uh, Acacia in the Ring, uh, Nick Luck, Daily Podcast. We got a lot of shows. We got a lot of shows. And uh, who else? Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you subscribe. And we talk about it all the time. Whatever you, uh, whatever you're using. If you're using uh, most, I think use the little purple podcast app on their iPhone. Um, subscribe to this network. Uh, the the we call it the black feed. It's the black logo. Um, that's kind of the main feed that has all the shows. Subscribe to that. Subscribe to uh, the individual shows that you like as well. That that's that's helpful as well. Um, fun day, fun weekend of racing. I think the Fox Show is Saturday uh, only, and then obviously it's Super Bowl Sunday. I love the under i said it before i'll say it again i love the under it's 56 buy it up to 56 and a half and enjoy the game and we'll see you next week i need to know everything who in the what in the where i need everything trust me i hear what you're saying but i like it's new what you're telling me i'm curious george i hop in the porsche with five and a horse i'm ready for war i'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost i need to know everything now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in talk up their body, another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes. Stay in your lane, I'll stay on the go. I can to play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me, then I double up again, none of their nose, none of them cold. They just got lucky but never adapted, so I'm to the one if it's coming to blows. My enemies cutting it close, I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke, I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything now they ain't go harder than me They need a blade and a sheath A shank and a piece A crate full of heat An army of fleet A tank and a jeep A navy at sea With ace of marine An ace up they sleeve A team of marines A freak on a leash A beast with an appetite Razor for teeth And still they will lay at my feet Boy you got the wrong one I gotta look over All of my publishing statements For Q1 as soon as the song's done I gotta call up my mama And tell her I made it As soon as my log's done I gotta read all my trade publications And sit my teeth till it is all done I think it's all fun I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything